continuing this morning in our sermon series called Generous Living. Last Sunday's sermon provoked a lot of, of um, engaged, healthy discussion on our uh, staff here at the church, and I hope that's uh, happening among you as well, is having good discussions and just listening to the guiding of the Spirit and the Word of God and making choices in the whole area of generosity and giving. In the week before we started this new series, uh, someone asked me, uh, why do we talk about money all the time? In other words, you preach about money too much. Uh, at the same time, just recently, someone else said this to me, you know, uh, you really ought to preach just about money and sex, because those are the two things people think most about. <laughs> In other words, you don't preach about money enough, or sex. So which is it? Do we, do, we, do we not talk enough about money or do we preach too much about money? Well, I'm not sure. All I know is that uh, Jesus talked a lot about money. Uh, someone has reckoned that a little over a quarter of the parables have to do with money and being a, a good steward. And someone else wrote that a third of Christ's teachings have to do with money. So why did Jesus talk about money so much? Well, it's because how we think about money and what we do with money is one of the prime indicators of our heart's condition in relationship to God. Uh, generosity and giving is an external expression of an internal commitment. And so it's important. That's why Jesus talked about it. Last week, Sam said, what God wants most is faith. And that's absolutely true. And what we do with money is maybe the prime uh, way of revealing whether our faith is in self or whether our faith is in God. Last Sunday, uh, Sam also talked about his journey in relationship to the tithe. And he talked about um, how he started off as a grudging tither. And then he became a cheerful giver, only he wasn't very cheerful. And uh, cheerful meant to him, uh, give as much as you can feel cheerful about, which he admitted wasn't very much. But uh, then he became a joyful tither. And the reason for that is because he, he recognized that the whole idea of tithe isn't just contained in the law, that it precedes the law. And that it has more to do with our creaturely, our human response, the universal response to God, our creator. Well, you can have a, a healthy and um, substantive and positive discussion or debate about all those things. But I'll tell you what, it does dovetail, it does correspond to the teaching of this church. And I'll tell you, if you haven't uh, seen that little green booklet uh, that uh, is written uh, kind of as a white paper on this whole subject. There are copies of it out in the courtyard and at the information desk. Here is kind of the pertinent paragraph from that for our church. As those who have experienced the fullness of God's generosity and grace in Jesus Christ, our generosity should at least equal that of the Old Testament saints. The fact that we live by grace and are no longer under the law does not mean that we should give less. Instead, our joy in Christ should motivate us to be even more generous. The New Testament does not prescribe any specific percentage for giving. Generosity is the standard. However, biblical precedence leads us to consider 10% or a tithe 
as the foundation upon which we build a lifestyle of generosity. One could say that generosity really begins with 11%. All right? It's a the tithe is a foundation for generosity. 10% should not be a static goal or end line. Giving 10% of all our annual income to God's work, and after last week, maybe we should say to the local church, should be an initial goal to aim for and to launch from. All right, that's from that green booklet. I encourage you all to pick one up and read it. Now, I was also thinking this week about, okay, if we give to the local church, um, uh, our, our congregation gets actually to make some decisions about how that money is uh, designated. And it occurred to me that um, in, in a general way, how, how should you think about that? And I thought about our vision statement, worship Jesus, love each other, reach our world, that as we give to the local church, we should think about that pattern that worship Jesus and love each other, that's the local ministry of the church, that's two-thirds maybe, and then reach our world, that's our local and global outreach budget as well as our global teammates, and that our vision statement uh, in a general way sets a good pattern for how we can uh, designate money through giving to the local church. Well, what about my story? Okay, my story is a lot shorter than Sam's story. I grew up in a church namely this one, and somehow it got into my mind that 10% uh, that is uh, a good thing to start with, and so it was kind of ingrained into me that 10% kind of off the top uh, went to the local church, and that's what we did as a family, and that's what I grew up with, and my wife, who grew up in a, on the East Coast in, an, in another church, also grew up that way, and so we did not have any marital tension over this issue whatsoever. It was, it was a given. It was assumed. We just did that. But I'm not patting myself on the back, and the reason for that is because I still thought wrongly about it, because um, I, I didn't really understand generosity, and I don't think I really understood God's heart on this, because how I thought about it was, good, fine, I'll give my 10%. That's God's. And the rest of it is mine to do with whatever I want. All right, I don't think that's right. It took me a long time to figure out that that's not... Uh, Right, and so today what we're going to talk about is what about the 90%, okay, what about all this? How should we think about the 90%, what should we do with the 90%? Well, the first thing to understand is this, it's quite simple and direct, it's all God's, it is all God's. Hey, you know what I need, if someone could just uh, bring me up 50, I just need $50 in cash, who's got $50 in cash for me? Oh, Come on, come on up here. Let's count it out. Make sure. You, oh, thank you. Oh, 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 okay, thank you. All right. 20. Sure enough, fifty dollars. Hey, thanks, Wally. Hey, was that hard to do? No. Why? Why wasn't that hard to do? You, you gave that to me before the service started. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it wasn't hard because it was mine anyway, and he knew it. Okay. And uh, really, we have to have this perspective that it's all God's to begin with. It's not hard to give uh, the money when you know that it's God's. Okay, you say, well, does it really work that way? Does it really, is it that simple? Well, here are some verses for you. Check this out. Um, the first one from Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You think, ah, oh, yeah, that's just kind of the universe, you know. Uh, but it gets more specific than that. Look at this verse. From Haggai, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. So, it's, so also the money, also the possessions, also the wealth. 
Uh, well, you say, well, yeah, but I worked for it. I did it. It was my labor. Check out this next verse. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Who's the person who gives you the health and the smarts and the opportunity and the ability? He's the one who's made it possible for you to earn money, and therefore, again, it all belongs to him. And of course, if you still put up resistance, here's the trump card. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, okay? And what was that price? What were you redeemed with? What were you purchased with? You were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the only reasonable response of worship is to put our bodies on the altar, and guess what goes with the body? Yeah, the wallet, exactly. So it's, it's all, it, it, all, it all belongs to God, and so uh, how, do, how are we supposed to think about this? Is we need to start off with that fundamental truth that it, it's all God, that it all belongs to him. He's the owner. We are not the owners of it. It's not just the 10% that belongs to him. All of it belongs to him. So that leads very easily to the second idea, and that is this. We're called to steward all of it well. We're called to manage all of it well. If I'm, if I'm not the owner, okay, in the end, I'm not, I'm not the owner of this 90%. I'm a steward. And a steward is someone who's been entrusted with somebody else's money or possessions or property, and the steward is charged to employ that to the best, for the best of the owner, okay, uh, for the good of the owner. And that's what we are called to do as well. God has entrusted the 90% to us to steward well. So, uh, we, you know, I used to think that my stewardship duties began and ended with the tithe. There, I, I gave my 10%, Work done. That's not the way it is. Actually, the real work of stewardship begins with the 90%. Because when, when we give the 10%, we're actually letting the, the church uh, steward that. We, our job is to steward this. And God says, what are you going to do with this for my glory? How are you going to maximize my glory? How are you going to honor me with this 90%? That, that's the big question. That's the, that's the real deal of stewardship is what do we do with the 90%? How can we maximize that for God's glory? Now, let's take a look at a bad example, and let's take a look at a good example. First of all, how to be a fool with money. How to be a fool with money. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Uh, let's start with the context. Jesus doesn't just, his parables rarely are just out of the blue. Uh, it's usually in response to a situation, a context. So Jesus um, tells this parable as part of a conversation. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, um, I want my money, make him give it to me. Jesus replied, verse 14, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, I find this verse very ironic because God the Father has, in fact, established Jesus as the judge over everybody. Everyone is going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account for how they live their lives, including what they did with their possessions and wealth, right? So he is the absolute ultimate judge. And he says, well, I'm not the judge of you guys. Well, He's not, he, in other words, he doesn't want to get involved in their petty little legal disputes over money. 
right? Plus, he sniffs out a heart issue here, which Jesus was very good at doing. He, he sniffs something out. So he says, verse 15, then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And now Jesus tells a story. Verse 16, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. By the way, who made the ground fertile? Who brought the rain? Who makes the wheat grow? Who owns it all? Okay, just checking. All right. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, the rich farmer had a problem. It was a good problem, a problem we'd all like to have, right? I got too, I got too much here. Too much going on. What shall I do, he wonders. Is that a good question? Yes, that's a good question. How should he have answered that question? Now, we're going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. There's, there's nothing in the text that would lead us to give him the benefit of the doubt, but we will. Okay? We're going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he has already paid his temple tax, if you will, his tithe, and um, he has also... Um, taking care of his family, uh, because even uh, hard-hearted pagans will take care of their family, right? And taking care of your family is part of honoring God with the 90%. That is part of how we maximize the 90% for the glory of God is by taking care of our family. So Sam kind of talked about this last week as well, but of course you've got to live in a house, all right? So you got either rent or mortgage payments, and um, you have to eat food, so you got to put food on the table, and you've got to buy clothes for everyone. They need to wear something. And in our culture, you have to have transportation, and so cars and gas and repairs. Yeah. And then uh, you got to have insurance on all that stuff, right? And then uh, there's medical stuff and health insurance and all that going on. And if the kids are in school, you got to, you know, their tuition and... Uh, you know what? You, vac vacation is not a sin. You do have to, you know, the family that plays together stays together, right? So I'm not saying, all right, so that's, okay, so that's, that's all good. That is good stuff. That is honoring to God. That, that's one way that you maximize God's glory is by taking care of your family. Okay, that is part of what you do with the 90%. But this guy had a lot left over. He had a lot. So much he wasn't sure what to do with it all. And he says, well, what should I do with this excess, this kind of um, uh, uh, leftover uh, money that could be used at his disposal, at his discretion? Discretionary, disposable funds. In that culture, it was commodity. It was, it was grain, okay? So um, now, by the way, in our, in our lives, we, I think it's a good idea to shoot to have some of this because that's, that's the place out of which we really are able to show generosity uh, and bless people. And not everybody will have the same amount of this, all right? But the, but the question is, what should I do? What should I do with this? What would have been a good answer to his question? Hmm, I have, my barns are full. I have more than I can fit in my barns. What should I do with it? What would be a good answer to that question? Those are all good answers. I heard, give, I heard give it away, a lot of give it away. There's a lot of different ways you could um, invest that uh, wealth uh, 
and even in his culture, but to be generous with it and to give it away, to bless others with it. There's a lot of things he could have done, but what did he do? All right, that's verse 18. He decided to do something. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Bigger barns, bigger lifestyle, security, self-sufficiency, live the good life, enjoy the pleasures of life, live for self. He's living the American dream 2,000 years before America. How can that possibly? We like to build things bigger, don't we? Check this out. Look at this quote. The average new U.S. house has increased in size by more than 1,000 square feet from an average size of 1,600 square feet in 1973, when they first did the census on this, to 2,687 square feet in 2016. Is that because our families are getting bigger? No, look at this chart. Okay, the red, the red line going down is family size. So as families shrink, house sizes are mushrooming. Explain the logic of that to me. Uh, it's because we can. But just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? And so uh, we, we kind of, uh, if we're really honest with ourselves, we fall very easily into the trap of the rich farmer, is that we've got more, and so we, we, we build bigger things. We buy more stuff. We, we live a, 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 a lifestyle that is always increasing. Well, what does God think about it? Verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. God's allowed to say that. <laughs> you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. The rich farmer thought he was being wise and prudent by building bigger barns. But God says, no, that is unwise. That is not prudent. You are, in fact, are a fool. Why was he a fool? Was he a fool because he was a good farmer? Was he a fool because he had a great harvest? Was he a fool because he was wealthy? Was he a fool because he was successful? Why? No, 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 no. Why was he a fool? He was a fool because of two things. He was a fool because he was selfish. He only thought about himself and certainly not about God. And he was a fool because he was only thinking of this life. He was short-sighted. He was selfish and short-sighted. That's what made him a fool in God's sight. He was selfish and short-sighted. All throughout the wisdom liter literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, you get lots of references to the fact that it's vanity to amass, to live to amass wealth so that you'll die and who knows who will inherit it. Don't know if they'll be smart or stupid or righteous or wicked, but, but giving yourself to amassing wealth is you're going to die, and you're going to have to face judgment, and you don't know what happens with it. And it's just vanity and meaningless, and that's why God calls this man a fool. Selfishness and greed will be exposed for what they are, and that is foolish. He did not think about the fact that there's another life 
and he will have to stand before God and give account for how he lived this life. So that is an example of how not to steward the 90%. That's a bad example. It's a negative example. That's not how you do it. Not selfishly and not short-sightedly. Okay? Well, how, how, are we, how are we to steward it? How are we to think about it and employ it? Well, let's, use it, let's get a good example. So here is a good example, how to be wise with money. Turn to Luke 16. It's just a couple pages over. We'll read a parable at the beginning here, the first nine verses. Luke 16, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. By the way, we'll all give an account of our management. It's a principle that we see over and over in the parables in Christ's teaching. Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So he's going to get fired, right? The clock is ticking. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, hmm, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. No, I'm, a, I'm an accountant, not a day laborer. And I'm ashamed to beg. I'm too proud for that. Hmm, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, what's going on there? Commentators are all over the place on that. Some are, some are trying to whitewash this dude and say uh, he's just, he's just uh, writing off the cut that he would have taken. And so he's taking a hit but making friends by doing that. He's losing money, uh, not his master's money, and, um, and, but he's making friends with it. And others say, no, he, he just, while he still has the ability to do it, he's using whatever power and influence he has to make friends, and what he's doing is kind of shady. Well, that's not the point. The point isn't exactly what he does. The point is how he's thinking now about the future. So, uh, we continue. <clears throat> The master, remember who's firing him, the master commended the dishonest manager, not, not because he was dishonest, all right? Not because he was dishonest, but because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, here it is, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, Again, he's not being commended for his dishonesty. Uh, he's being commended for the fact that he used worldly wealth, he used the influence that he had with money to earn friends. He thought about the future. And Jesus is saying, boy, you know, there, there's a wicked guy who thought right, who prepared for the future. I wish my people were that smart, that they would think about worldly wealth that way and use it, employ it, for the future, for eternity. Think for the future. Make friends for yourselves. This, this shrewd manager was not short-sighted. He had the long view of things and he understood the proper use of money, how, how, what to use money for. We need to handle our master's resources with our eternal future in mind. 
But I, that, that verse 9 is a curious one, isn't it? It's a very curious verse. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Well, what does that mean? Gain, use money to gain friends so you'll be welcomed in heaven. That's an interesting uh, whole stream of thought there. Well, well, here's what I think. We've been talking about it all year. That's what it is. Invested, called to make disciples. We are all called to make disciples. And discipleship happens in relationship. And so when you're investing in people who last forever, when, when, you are, when it's a matter of telling someone about Jesus Christ, when it's, when it's a matter of discipling someone or teaching them or training them or coaching them or mentoring them, as you invest with your time and your talents and your treasures in people, some of those people are going to go ahead of you into heaven. And they're going to welcome you when you come and say, thank you, thank you for your investment in my life. Thank, thank you. And uh, Jesus is saying, use what you have here. Use the 90% to invest in relationships, invest in making disciples. That's what this time is for, believers. And there'll be a reward for it in the future. I was so uh, encouraged. Uh, great turnout for the chocolate and chat, the ladies' chocolate and chat event. And some, I think, uh, 40 or 50 uh, ladies uh, turned in cars saying, hey, I want to be involved in mentoring uh, someone else. And so, wow, that's it. That's what he's talking about. Uh, you know, if you, take, if you take money and you buy someone a coffee, that's not a huge expense, but, okay, you, you buy someone a coffee so you can sit down and read the Bible with them, talk to them about life, help them, that, that's money invested in heaven, okay? That has eternal, that has eternal benefits to it. And so uh, I believe that Jesus is saying, hey, think, think this way, invest this way in the future. A, a wise person recognizes that there's continuity between how we steward what God has given us here and the responsibilities and the reward that we'll receive in the next life. We do it not for the reward. We do it out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. But God is a God who rewards. And we talked just a couple weeks ago about the fact that we will be resurrected bodily, physically, that there's continuity between this life and the next life. Same is true here. That, that what we do with our possessions, with our wealth, with the 90%, what we do with that will make an impact on our eternity, maybe even physically. So let's just imagine for a while, because it says there at the end of verse 9, another curious phrase, that we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That, that if we're resurrected bodily and live in a new heaven and new earth, there's got to be dwellings, right? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah, many rooms. There, there is this theme through Scripture of dwelling places. And it seems like Jesus is saying here that <clears throat> what, what you do on earth with, with the 90%, okay, how you employ that is going to have an impact uh, in being received by friends into their dwellings or, or as a part of building your dwelling. So just it sparks the imagination here. This may be more imagination than anything, but you know, people are investing in their dream houses or their forever homes. But guess what? Maybe we're always doing that. Maybe there's an eternal building construction project going on in heaven 
And, and, and what we do here is either sending materials ahead or not. And some of us with our choices are sending materials ahead to build a pup tent. And, and some are, because of what they choose to do with the 9% here, are sending materials ahead to build a studio apartment. And some, some are building a ranch house. They don't see it or know it, but that's what's being built. And, and maybe some are building a mansion. But, you know, it's possible we get to heaven and we say, we, we got the pup tent going. And we're like, um, why, why is it my house a little bigger? And, like, we did the best with what you sent us. All right? We did the best with what you sent us. <clears throat> now, I, okay, that's probably... That's probably um, more imagination, but there's a, there's a seed truth in there, okay? And it causes us to ask questions. What kind of building materials are we sending ahead to heaven for our future dwelling? Whom have we influenced spiritually to the point that they would welcome us into their eternal dwelling places? So every time we, we are generous and we give, whether it's, it's to the church or global ministries and are impacting lives or are, you, are using this to be able to uh, impact others spiritually, then we are investing in our eternal home. And that, Jesus says, is wise. Okay, that is not short-sighted. That is far-sighted, is to, is to use even the 90% here with eternity in mind. That is wise. And, and that's what we're talking about this year, called to make disciples. All right, hurdles. We talked about hurdles last week. I'm just going to list these for you. Hurdles to having margin, because... Um, this is what we're talking about here. How, what do we do with that? And how do we create more there so that we can be generous and give? What are the hurdles? Debt is a hurdle. Materialism is a hurdle because we tend to spend what we have. doesn't matter if you make 30000 or 300000 Either can say, well, I don't have any money. Well, why? Because I spent it all. Okay? Why? Well, because I, you know, I wanted stuff. <clears throat> We can't maximize God's glory with the 90% by living the maximum lifestyle we can afford. Let me say that again. We can't maximize God's glory with the 90% if we're living the maximum lifestyle we can afford because we've put it all into the lifestyle. <sighs> thoughtlessness. Okay, debt, materialism, thoughtlessness. We just don't have a plan. No strategy. Don't know what we're doing. Just kind of living by feelings, you know, the idolatry of feelings, whatever I feel like. We can't say no today so we can say yes tomorrow. And finally, fear. We're just, we're just, fear drives us, and so we're just saving, saving, saving. We feel good about saving, 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 and yet, remember the rich fool, today your life is going to be held accountable for what you've done. He didn't use his, uh, it's smart and wise to save, but that guy didn't use his, okay, so if, that, if we're putting everything there, then we don't have margin to be generous from. So what now? What now? Well, this is a hard area, and, and people are at all different places here. And, and some have a bunch to give, and some, their life looks kind of like, you know, this right now. Okay? And that's hard. Hard to think about it. Okay? But don't go home and numb, numb yourself with Netflix. Okay? In, engage, engage this stuff, all right? And think about it. God wants us all to, all of us, all of us, God wants to grow in this area. Here are a couple thoughts. Uh, first, you just need to evaluate yourself and say, which, which one uh, do, do I really resemble, the rich fool or the shrewd uh, manager? 
And here's how you can tell. Just take out your bank statement. <laughs> Where's the money going? If an objective third party looked at how you spent your money, would they say it's mostly selfish and short-sighted? Or would they say, ah, I see that you're investing in people and uh, the work of God in the world that's going to have eternal benefit? Hmm? Uh, I think that'd be a pretty uncomfortable exercise for all of us. <sighs> I'm going to try to do that. <clears throat> Secondly, uh, do you, who, who are you being a benefactor to? This thing really changed for us because I felt like in the first part of my life, people were be benefactors to me. I received lots of, of generosity to me, but I, I may have been tithing, but I wasn't being very generous. And actually, we were missionaries in Germany. We were in Berlin. And, uh, you know, we're missionaries. We're supposed to be the recipients of generosity. Right? We're poor. Well, there was a gal in our student ministry who was even way poorer than we were, okay? And we took her under our wing, and we started to be benefactors to her to help her out. And we discovered that it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's actually a great thing to be a benefactor to people. Now, people kept supporting us. People kept being generous to us. People were benefactors to us. But we began to learn the joy of being a be a benefiting someone else. There's always someone else. And if we were all, if we all had that, say, who am I being a, God, who have you called me to benefit and to be generous to and be a benefactor to, that can start to change this thing and there's a lot of joy in it. And finally, you've got to take some concrete steps. You've got to make a plan, right? And here are going to be some helps. In the back of your sermon notes, there um, are some pieces of information we're going to have over the next two Sundays, an opportunity for people who just want to do kind of budget basic talks, talking about a budget. Uh, what's that all about? Just initial steps and in thinking through budget. And then in the fall, we're going to offer Crown Financial uh, training. And so um, there'll be opportunities for making a plan in these areas. And ask for help. Ask for help. Um, uh, we, we haven't always been as intentional as we should have of, of um, at kind of passing on to our kids our thinking and our um, choices in this area. But maybe just, you know, if you have parents who modeled it well but never really kind of told you, just ask them or ask others that you see or come to the discipleship counseling team. This is all a part of that, and there's no shame in that. We can all use some help in it. <sighs> I'm going to ask um, the no-name quartet to join me up here. They're going to lead us. And I just want to end with these verses from Luke 12 because we can get a little anxious and stressed by this kind of talk. But here's what I, I want to remind you of. As you think about, God, how can I maximize your glory with the 90%? What does that mean for me? Not to be selfish and self-centered and short-sighted, but to, but to employ the 90% in view of eternity. But this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you